Billy Boyonel joins me on episode 53. Today we have a little part of blues harmonica history as Billy lived through the heyday of the blues in Chicago and was a peer of many of the great players at the time, being born just five years after the little Walter himself. He took a couple of lessons with John Lee Williamson, a.k.a. Sonny Boy Williamson I, at just 12 years of age. Billy released his first record at the age of 17 and then went on to release two songs with Bo Diddley, including coming up with possibly the most well-known harmonica riff ever on I'm a Man. Shortly afterwards, Billy went on to record his harmonica classic, I Wish You Would. Billy took some time off from touring for a few years before he came back strong with two albums released through Alligator Records in the 1990s. He has continued to record and release great albums until recently, and his passion for the harmonica is as infectious as ever after over 70 years of playing. Billy Boy Arnold, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, how you doing? So great, Billy. So you're you're a guy who was around when all you know the Chicago Blues is kicking off, and all the greats around. I think you were born in 1935, so you're only five years younger than Little Walter, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you grew up with that scene. You know, you, obviously you're from Chicago as well, yeah. Yeah. You grew up with that scene, so you know what first got you interested in the harmonica. Oh, I was listening to blues records when I was four or five years old, and I liked blues. And then I got interested in harmonica when I heard John Lee Sonny Boy Williamson's record. when I was, I was about five, six years old then. But I didn't know he played a harmonica. I just liked the way he sang. And I, later on, I found out that he plays a harmonica. Right, yeah. So John Lee is a forerunner for a lot of the modern harmonica sound, wasn't he? So I understand you uh, had some lessons with him. Yeah, I had but... two lessons with him when I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. So how did you manage to get in touch with him? Well... My uncle had a butcher shop on 31st and Giles. And Sonny Boy lived at 3226 Giles. And um, I saw a guy pass with a guitar, and I asked him, I said, did you know Sonny Boy? He said, yeah, Sonny Boy, yeah, I know. He said, say, Sonny Boy lived at 3226 Giles. And that's how I found out where he lived at. Sure, so you, you went round there, and you, what, you just asked him for, for a lesson? or? Well, me and my cousin got together, me and my cousin and another kid. We was all 12-year-old kids. They weren't interested in blues, but I was. So I got them to go with me, and we rung the doorbell. He came to the door, and he said, can I help you? I said, we want to see Sonny Boy. He said, this is Sonny Boy. I said, we want to hear you play harmonica. He said, come on up. I'm proud to have you all. That's how it started. So I met with him on two occasions before he was murdered. Do you remember particularly what he said to you in the lessons, anything that stuck with you? Well, he told me, well, you have to choke it to make that uh, wow, wow, you know, get that blues sound. So you Mm -hmm. have to choke it. 
Today they call it bending the notes. But back in them days, all the black guys, the older black guys, called it choking. So you were just 12 at this stage, yes? How good yeah. were you on harmonica at this point? I wasn't as good at all. I didn't know nothing about how to play it. Right, so you were almost a, pretty much a beginner, yeah? So um, I was. I was a beginner. Yeah. So what was John Lee like then as a, when, in these lessons? Was he uh, was a good teacher? Yeah, he was a good, nice, friendly guy. And he uh, seemed to enjoy our company. And he had guests at his house, pianist Johnny Jones and his girlfriend. And uh, he took his time up and he was, you know, teaching us. So we got ready to go and he, he said, come by anytime. So I met with him one more time before he uh, was murdered. Yeah. And do you remember what you paid him for the lesson? I didn't pay for it. Oh, great. He didn't charge me for no lesson, though. Superb, yeah. And did you discover that he'd been murdered, you know, after you went round again, or what was the story well, about Well, when he came back the third time, I came by there, and the landlady said, uh, haven't you heard? He got killed, you know. That's uh, the rough times back then, eh? So as I say, so John Lee Williamson the first was the forerunner to, you know, getting that sort of more modern sound on the, on the harmonica. This was what 1947 then when you were when you had a couple of lessons with him. 1948. Mm-hmm. So was blues starting to become popular in Chicago at that stage? All oh, the blues was popular in Chicago in the black area all the time. All through the 40s as well, was it? Oh yeah, that was the music of the black people from the south. All the black people was in Chicago and everywhere else came from the south. Yeah, and lots of immigration into Chicago, wasn't it? And then. But you you were born in Chicago yourself, weren't you? You're a native yes. of Chicago. Yeah. Well, they migrated from the south because there was more jobs in the north, and, and they weren't under such pressure, you know. Yeah. And uh, okay. And so, you know, what about when you you know when you started playing yourself uh, around Chicago? What what sort of age were you? You know, started getting involved playing with oh, bands? Or? I guess I was about seventeen because I was too young to go in clubs. You had to be 21 to get in, in nightclubs. So I guess I was about 17, and I listened to all the blues guys buying the records, and, you know, it's just one of those things that uh, you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and you get the results. Yeah, and so you had a recording when you were 17 called Hello, Stranger. I sure did. hear the influence of the Sunny Boy, the first sound on that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I was trying. I didn't know any other. I think Lil Walter had just started recording with Muddy Waters. Lil Walter's sound was, you know, becoming popular.
So this is where harmonica started to become really popular, was it? Yeah, well, it got to the place where most bands had to have a harmonica in it because the Walter made the harmonica so popular after Sonny Boy, you know. Most most clubs wanted a harmonica in the band because of Low Walter and Muddy Waters' influence. Yeah, but but you'd already been playing by this stage. So were you 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 you're also the singing as well. You sing on this record, her old stranger, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, you had to sing. If you're gonna be a blues harmonica player, you got to be able to sing. I didn't know whether I could sing, but I tried. You know. So you're playing harmonica first, were you? And then you sort of, like you say, you kind of realize you had to sing to be able to get, to get into the blues scene. Well, I was singing all the time with the harmonica. I listened to records, so... Playing harmonica without singing, uh, not you know the right thing to do if you want to make records and be popular like uh, Sonny Boy and Lil Walter, uh, Snooky Pryor. I mean, you get a lot of harmonica players now who don't sing, don't you? So um, you think you know there's a place for that, or you still think singing and playing the harmonica is something that needs to go together? It don't need to go together. No, you got harmonica players that don't sing, and most of the time if they don't sing, they they. they they probably didn't have the uh, aptitude to sing, you know. Maybe their voice wasn't what But if you're going to be a blues singer, a harmonica player, a blues singer, a guitar player, you got to sing too, you know. Some yeah, of them have yeah. and some of them don't. Yeah, but I guess it helps you become that front man, doesn't it, which helps you call the shots a bit more. So on this recording uh, of A Lost Stranger, I believe this is where you got your, your nickname of Billy Boy. Yeah, they gave me that name, they, the record company. Yeah, so that was a surprise to you, was it? That, what they released the single and then it, you, you were called Billy Boy Arnold on there. Yeah, I, yeah, I was surprised. I mean, they, well, I called them up and they said, "We gave you a new name, Billy Boy." I, I understand at that age you, you weren't so um, pleased with the, the title Boy. You know that sort of age you you were. Well, you know, when you're young like that, you want to be a man. You want to be recognized as more mature. You know. Yeah, but uh, but it stuck and uh, it turned out well for you, the name. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was, it was all right, you know. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, Sonny Boy, uh, the first is your big idol, so having Boy in the title, <laughs> it matched up with that, didn't it? Yeah, right, yeah. That W single, Hello Stranger, then, did that then put your name on the map? Did that start getting you more recognition and, and more gigs? And Well, it put my name on the map in Chicago. I don't know whether they did all over, you know, all over the United States. But... Sonny Boy's wife said, you're not in the music business unless you make records. So you can be a great singer, great piano player, great harmonica player, but if you never make records, who knows what you can do, you know. Company. And you know, it came about that you got the, you know, to go into the studio to make that record. Through blind, blind John Davis, who made a lot of records with Sonny Boy. We became good friends when I was about 14 or 15. And he had these friends who uh, were starting a record company and they were looking for talent. So he introduced me to these people. Great. And did you, 
have your own band then, or did you just have a sort of scratch? Oh, no, band? I didn't have a band. I was just a kid, you know. Yeah, great. It's a good record, though, for the first record. And then uh, and then a few years later, you know, it's quite famous for you, you started playing with Bo Diddley. Yeah, right, yeah. I started playing with Bo Diddley in 1951. Mm-hmm. So did you, I believe, did you meet him on Maxwell Street? You are playing with him on Maxwell Street? No, I met him in mm-hmm. on the south side of Chicago. He's playing mm-hmm. on the street corners, you know. And I told him I played harmonica, and he, he invited me to come by his house Saturday and play with them, you know, on the street corners. So you know how his name became Bo Diddley. So I understand that, that you were helping write some lyrics for the song Bo Diddley, and, and that's and you sort of christened him Bo Diddley, yeah? Well, I wasn't helping writing him songs for the song Bo Diddley. We didn't have a song called Bo Diddley, and we didn't have an artist named Bo Diddley. His name mm-hmm. was Ellis McDaniels. And the hipsters. And when we go into the studio, well, I'd heard the bass player had mentioned when we was playing on the corner. He said, "Hey, Ellis, that goes Bo Diddley." And there was a little short comedian at the Indiana Theater. They had midnight rambles every Saturday night. They cleared the theater out and and uh, had a stage show. And they featured a major blues singer like Big Bill Brunsey or Memphis Minnie. The Sunny Boy played that before, you know, a couple of years before that. Yeah. But anyway, that, that's how the word Bo Diddley got into the picture. It wasn't that, uh, you know, he named himself Bo Diddley. Yeah, and on the, I think on the B side of that Bo Diddley song was the I'm a Man, yeah? I'm a Man, right, yeah. Mm. So was that the first time that I'm a Man was recorded, or was that an existing song then? No, it was the first time it ever, he wrote that song. He was a creative guy. He right. wrote all his material, and he made that song up. And Muddy Waters liked it, and Muddy Waters wanted to do because I'm a man was a, a statement that the black people in America, especially the men, recognized that they are a man, and everybody knew they were a man, and the whole world knew they were a man, but the whole world discrimination, they didn't want to, you know, acknowledge it. So he made that record, I'm a man. Then Muddy Waters made Manish Boy, same thing as I'm a man, same song. Yeah, so that's possibly one of the most famous harmonica riffs ever, yeah, the I'm a Man riff. So um, you've got yeah. credited, Billy, with, uh, with coming up with that, you know, that, like I say, uh, potentially the most famous one. So uh, congratulations on that. Was that a big hit, those two records for you with Bo Diddley? Oh, yeah. That was his, his biggest hit was Bo Diddley and the flip side, I'm a man. Mm. And that's, he put that beat, da, 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 da. that was his, his original. He was very creative and very original, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and a little bit different, wasn't he? He wasn't really kind of straight blues, was he? A bit more, what, rock and roll? Yeah, well, he had, I don't know whether you call it rock and roll. Some people call it rock and roll, but he had a unique way of playing. And he wasn't a, just a straight-out blues player. He played different kind of rhythms, you know, than the most blues guys. Yeah, great. So 
It was shortly after this, I believe, that you you had a bit of a misunderstanding with Leonard Chess at Chess Records. So, so those two records were recorded at Cheshire, but you had a bit of a misunderstanding thinking that you weren't really wanted at Chess Records, so you went and signed for VJ. Well, no, I didn't have a bit of understanding with Leonard Chess. I never had an agreement with Leonard Chess. Mm-hmm. My idea was to make records like Muddy Waters and everybody else. And so I had a song and I went to another record company, but it wasn't a misunderstanding with Leonard Chess okay. or Bo Diddley, you know. Yeah. But that was quite a big move from you because, you know, you just had what, a successful single with Bo Diddley, but then, and then you decided you wanted to go out on your own then, did you? Was that part of your reasoning? Well, I decided that before I met Bo Diddley when I, when I made Hello Stranger. I didn't know Bo Diddley, so I was out on my own then. Mm. I made the record. Right, yeah. So then you went to VJ Records, which I think was just across the street, was it, from Chess Records? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and is that when you first recorded I Wish You Would? Yeah, that's when I first uh, I, when I first made it up, wrote it, if you want to call it that. Yeah. So this is probably your most well-known song, certainly under your name. So that's a song that you've recorded several times. You recorded it back then. Was it originally recorded in 1958? No, 1955. 55. And then you've recorded various versions. So it's it's been good to you. This song is it a song that you still uh, enjoy playing? Uh, you know, more recent years. Now that's the song that put my name on the map. I yeah. wish you would. It's one of my most popular songs, and I still sing it and play it. I believe originally when you wrote it, it was called Diddy Diddy Dum Dum. Is that right? Yeah, that was a little girl that lived in the building, and uh, she used to say that Diddy Diddy Dum Dum. And so I, I made a, a little rift up behind it, and then uh, it came from a little three-year-old girl. I used to say "diddy diddy dum dum" all the time, you know. Right, brilliant, and that's the da 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 da, the sort of main yeah. riff of "Wish You Would." Yeah, I know you kind of got tied a little bit of a kind of that it was a kind of Bo Diddley style riff in the song because that you know it, that it was that sort of riff which was also part of uh, what the Bo Diddley song was it? Well, no, it wasn't part of the Bo Diddley song. Jody Williams made the guitar part then, and uh, it was sort of on that on that kick, but. Uh, it wasn't a, a Bo Diddley song, because you know, Bo Diddley, when he went to the studio, he didn't even have a Bo Diddley song. His name wasn't Bo Diddley, his name was Ellis McDaniels and the Hipsters. Bo Diddley thing came up when I mentioned that uh, this comedian at the Indiana Theater, his name was Bo Diddley, his stage name was Bo Diddley. Yeah. And that was the funniest word I'd ever heard in my life, and I just laughed, laughed, laughed. So we were in the studio three years after that, I say, or he was saying, Papa gonna buy his baby diamond ring. I say, why don't you say Bo Diddley gonna buy his baby diamond ring? Mm-hmm. Now, if I hadn't said that, the word Bo Diddley would have never came out and it wouldn't have been no song called Bo Diddley. It wouldn't have been no artist called Bo Diddley. It just came to my head. I said, why don't you say Bo Diddley gonna buy his baby, baby diamond ring? Yeah. So in, in 55, you, you had, uh, I wish you would, as you say, this definitely put your name on the map. You became well established then on the, uh, on the Chicago blues scene. Did you, did you start were you playing outside Chicago as well at this stage? And uh, No, I was just playing out around Chicago, you know. Yeah. So was that the case with a lot of the blues artists in a lot of it concentrated in Chicago at that stage? Yeah, Chicago was like starting ground. I mean, 
a lot of the guys came from the South to Chicago for different reasons, better conditions and make more money, more jobs. And so it was a big audience for blues in Chicago. So you could get your start here in Chicago. And all the major record companies, RSA Victor, was recording here. Lester Melrose was in RSA Victor in Columbia. He was recording. They had studios here in Chicago. Recorded Memphis Mini, Tampere, and all these people recorded in Chicago. Great. Yeah, so you were playing, obviously, all the greats. Little Walter was active at this stage, obviously, still with Muddy Waters in what, the mid-50s and all the other greats. You know, Junior Wells was around at this stage, and obviously the two Sunny Boys as well. So were you, you know, in regular seeing these guys playing on the same stages? And Well, not on the same stage, but the different clubs, you know. Yeah. Like I said, you know, everybody came to Chicago because other cities like Memphis was Memphis was pretty good. But most of the places down south didn't feature the blues like they did in Chicago. Blues really got its real strongest influence from the Chicago scene. Because all the blues singers was in Chicago. Murray Waters, Sonny Boy Williamson, Lil Walter, and eventually Holland Wolf. So Chicago was like the main place to go if you want to be play blues or hear if you like blues. Chicago was the city. Yeah, sure, yeah. So the the blues boom in Chicago lasted through the 50s, and is it starting to get into the 1960s, the blues was becoming less popular at that time? Well, yeah, well, the country blues, you know, like Lil' Walter and Muddy Waters and all those guys, they, their music sort of was changing, but the blues was still very popular. And all the guitar players would come to Chicago and try to get a start. And when they got to Chicago, they wanted to play jazz, and they couldn't play jazz. Because in order to play jazz, you had to study uh So they come to Chicago, I don't want to play no blues, I want to play jazz. And they couldn't play jazz. And then through the 60s, you, you released a couple of albums. I've got here that your 1963 album, Blues on the South Side, was that your first solo artist album? Or, or did you already re- release an album to your name with the sort of I Wish You Would album? I think that might have been the first solo album. And then, you know, you've got another album through the 60s, going to Chicago in the mid-60s. So you still acted through the 60s, but the blues is a bit less popular at that stage, yes? Yeah. I think a lot of the, a lot of the uh, blues artists went over to Europe to start playing. Did you, uh, did you go over to Europe yourself during that time? No, not during that time. Well, the, the big artists like Holland Wolf and Muddy Waters was booked in Europe because the European people liked the blues and they knew it came originated in Chicago. So it became popular to go to Europe to play the blues for the people in Europe. Yeah, but and in the sixties, of course, uh, famously the, the British blues boom was big, and, and the Yardbirds did two of your songs. Yeah, they, they recorded "I Wish You Would" and "Ain't Got You." I gotta wish- 
So, uh, how did you feel about people covering your songs? I appreciated it. It was a compliment. Mm -hmm. That's the greatest compliment you could get. Yeah. When other artists like your song well enough to do it. So, it was really a, a great thing. Did you get any money out of it, Billy? Is <laughs> the question. Well, the, the uh, DJ Publishing, they took all the money. I got $750 out of it. Yeah. And around uh, 1967 or 68, something like that. See, the publishing company, like VG, all the money went to them, and they didn't give the artists any money. Yeah. But you, you didn't feel bad about the Yardbirds, because like you say, it wasn't... Oh, no, I, was, yeah. I thought yeah. it was great. I, I, yeah. I mean, it, it enhanced my uh, popularity, Yeah. And my name and everything. It was, I, I appreciated what they did. Yeah, got you some more recognition, yeah. And I believe yeah. it's it right that David Bowie also covered I Wish You Would. Yeah, he sure did, yeah. Yeah, great. So obviously he was a, a massive name. And uh, and, and Tom Jones made a, a video. Did you ever see that video of Tom Jones, I Wish You Would? No, I'll, I'll find it, though. I'll put a link to that on the Yeah, on it, was, it was a video. It was on television. And it's called I Wish You Would. Tom Jones did it. Excellent, yeah. <laughs> Good stuff, yeah. yeah. So you were you were still playing for the sort of sixties and uh, you know sixties seventies and you were still quite active. Where I think in nineteen seventy five you were part of the uh, the American blues legend. Yeah. I think you, you particularly came back into, you know, sort of relaunching almost, you know, into full-time music in, in back in the 90s, yeah, when you released two albums on Alligator Records. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Yeah, so um, the, the first one was called um, Back Where I Belong, which is a, you know, suitable title for your sort of relaunching your solo quiz. Ain't nothing hurting me but my What happened to come about that you did you decide then to get back into music full time or was the opportunity well, I, there? Well, I never I never got out of it, but if you're not re, uh, recording and not traveling, uh, you sort of like uh, you ain't getting exposure, so you got to travel and record mm. and keep the exposure going, you know. Yeah. So I yeah, I never you got out of it. Sure. Yeah. So. It got you more recognition getting on Alligator, yeah. And then did you start touring uh, again after you'd done this album with Alligator in 1993? Yes, yes, I sure did, yeah. Sure, yeah. And, and I believe you wrote nine of the songs for this album. Yeah, yeah, I wrote most of it. The stuff I did for Alligator was two of my best albums. The, the stuff I did for Alligator was the most popular. Yeah. And to me, the best stuff I ever wrote was for Alligator. Yeah, no, definitely. The the Eldorado Cadillac album, which is the second album with Alligators, yeah, definitely one of my favorites yeah. of yours. And uh, that Move On Down the Road is a is a great song as well. 
You do write songs, as we talked about. You wrote "Wish You Would," and you you have written lots of lots of the songs before. And so, how have you approached writing songs, and particularly sort of blues songs? You know, what do you feel? What makes a good blues song? To uh, write a song, you know that you got to come up with something different. And the great blues singers all wrote most of their own material. They didn't have people like you know in Hollywood writing stuff for you. You had to have a big name, like if you were Frank Sinatra. They got writers all over the world trying to get you to do one of their songs. Because if Frank Sinatra did a song, then whoever wrote it would get the exposure and, and the popularity. So I knew from the beginning, I knew that Sonny Boy wrote all this stuff material. And I knew that you couldn't get, find somebody to write material for you. You had to write your own material. Some people can write good material. Some, you know, don't have the knack for it. Some of them just go around and sing other people's songs. But writing your own material gives you more recognition and is the best thing to do if you can do it. Sure. So how, how do you approach writing songs? Did you do that, you know, write the lyrics or did you use, you know, an instrument like a guitar to, when you were putting it together? No, I just think of a song, uh, maybe a woman's name or a topic, find some kind of topic and uh, I write a song around it, an idea, you know, something you do, you know. Writing the lyrics first. Yeah. Then. And then what you'd work with the other guys in the band to, to sort of put the yeah, music together yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah, put a band arrangement behind it. Great. So, yeah, so you have these, these two albums with, on Alligator, which definitely got you, you know, back on touring. And did you then start touring around the world at this stage again? And Yes. Yes, I did. Around the world. Uh, how do you enjoy life on the road? Oh, I enjoyed it. You know, you know when you, you're doing it and you you got a, a company behind you that's pushing your records, it's just fun. It's good. What sort of places did you get to? You went across to Europe and uh, uh, where else did you get to? Well, I went all over Europe, everywhere, you know. And uh, so, great. So, and after that, you know, the, another album I've got down here is, is Boogie and Shuffle in, in 2001. Was that also an alligator? No, no, that was... Uh, a company in uh, Canada. Okay, so did you then move away from Alligator then and, and start recording with other labels? Well, the guy that owned that company was a friend of the guy at Alligator, and he asked him, could he do an album on And he says, all right, you know. Yeah. So that's how that happened. Yeah, it's another good album. I enjoyed that one. And uh, there's an interesting interview, uh, the last track on that album, which is uh, really nice to, uh, people can check that out as well and uh, hear some more from you. And then you did a, an album with Rusty Zinn called Consolidated Mojo. Oh yeah, yeah. Got a track on it here, you're playing some chromatic uh, low-down blues.
chromatic is something you've, you you know you play you've recorded quite a few chromatic tracks haven't you so how's the chromatic been uh, for you Oh, it's pretty good. I, I don't play it all the time, but uh, I play it, you know. Is it something you started playing, you know, back in when you were younger, or did you pick it up later? Well, I got it from, no, I got the idea from Lou Walter. Mm-hmm. Lou Walter played chromatic on uh, some of Muddy's stuff, and everybody started getting on the chromatic kick, and nobody yeah. even thought of uh, the chromatic till Lou Walter did it. He was the front runner. Whatever yeah. he did, everybody copied. Yeah, so you like the use of the chromatic. And then uh, definitely my favorite album of yours, I think, is Checking It Out, which you recorded with Tony McPhee and the Groundhogs uh, oh, in yeah. 2006. Yeah, that's a that's a great album. You've got... Uh, in England, uh, yeah. So, yeah, that was about to say, so Tony McPhee is a, an English guy. Did you Where did you record the album? Uh, it was in London, I think. Yeah, in London. And it's somewhere in England. I think it was in London. Right, and uh, so how did this one come about? This oh, album? well, I was on tour over there, and uh, I think the promoter wanted us to do an album. That's how it came about. So were they your band while you were touring in England? Yeah, they were my backing band, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. It's great. it works really well uh, with those guys, yeah. Tony McPhee was a great guitar player, nice guy. Yeah, did you record just one album with him, or was it more? Oh, just one. We did only one. Yeah, that's a great album. I think you captured really well in that album. A lot of a lot of your classic songs are on there as well. And Riding yeah. the L's on there, which I really like. Is that a uh, is that a train song? Yeah. That nice train driving beat, and probably my favourite version of "Wish You Would" that you've recorded. You recorded several versions. I really like that one. It's a really hard hitting one. On uh, on the Tony McPhee album. Yeah, yeah, great. And then in 2008, you did an album called uh, "Billy Boy Sings Sunny Boy." So this is a sort of you know you're doing uh, John Lee Williamson songs all through this album. Is that something you always wanted to do? You know, sort of John Lee was your your big harmonica hero, yeah? Yeah, right. You know, I wanted to. Yeah, play your stuff, yeah. I mean, so, obviously, John Lee inspired you to start playing one of the songs on their Rubber Dub. Which is kind of based on Melichick Swing. I think that was one of your favorites of his, yeah? Mm-hmm. I did that song on my latest album, too, The Blue Soul of Billy Boy Arnold. Mm-hmm. It's called Just Keep Rubbing. Yeah, so and I've got a, there's a good video. I'll put a clip on, on again on the podcast page. We're showing you recording a song off that album as well. We see mm-hmm. in the band. You've got some great band members on that album, haven't you? Willie yeah. Big Eyes Smith is on there as the drummer for one, isn't he? Yeah. What about you know John Lee's style? And it's you know it's quite early in the in the sort of harmonica style, but um, you think it's still very influential that style and something that you know you, you've you've tried to get into your own playing. Well, you have to evolve to your own thing. You know, if you just rely on playing somebody else's style, then that means you don't grow. So you have to evolve. You know, you use some of it and 
And then you move on. Lil' Walter started off playing like John Lee. And then he developed into, evolved into his own style. You know, James Cotton, all those guys. Snooky Pryor was a John Lee Williamson uh, student. Yeah, John Lee really started off, didn't he? Yeah. A few years later, he also did a Billy Boy Sings uh, Big Bill Bruzy song as well. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Were you a big fan of his as well? Oh, yeah, Big Bill, yeah. I was a very big fan of his. He did a lot of recording with Sonny Boy on the guitar, you know. Yeah. And uh, I liked the way he sang, and I liked the way he played the guitar. And I met him when I was 15 years old. And I was really impressed by it. I heard his music when I was a kid, you know, maybe about seven, eight years old. My aunt had his record, Looking Up to Down. So I was a big, big Bill fan. Was it your decision to do these tribute albums to, to Sonny Boy and to Big Bill Broomsey or the record company? Or? No, it was a guy who wrote a book on Big Bill. I can't think of his name right off. Mm -hmm. It was his idea to do a Big Bill album, you know. Yeah. And then uh, another one, was, you have a song on the, a Little Walter tribute album called Remembering Little Walter. You play You're So Fine on that. You are a fine, healthy thing. I want to love you all the time. How did that come about with, you know, the other harmonica players on there? I don't remember that one too good. I haven't heard it in so long. Uh, yeah. But it was somebody's idea. <laughs> yeah, but a good mixture of players on. Good to get you on that one. And, um, yeah, and you, as you mentioned earlier on, your latest album is a loose soul of Billy Boy Arnold, yeah? Yeah. So what year is this one recorded? That was recorded, uh, I guess, about three years ago or so. Three years Um, you're still going strong recording sort of three, four years ago, Bill. You're doing great. So um, I'll be polite enough not to mention your age, but um, you know, born in 1935. What's the secret of your longevity and still playing for so long? Well, there's something you want to do. You don't stop. You know, as long as you can do it, you just do yeah. it. You still yeah. got that drive and energy to do it. Yeah. Great to see you. And a um, few of the other people you played with as well. I think during your career, you know, like you said, uh, you played a lot of the clubs around Chicago with lots of the other great harmonica players, but you also shared stages, you know, played on the same stage as sort of Muddy Waters and Howling Wolves. So, yeah. you, you know, you've you've been around all these guys. And, and I know you did a, a recording session for the BBC in uh, 97 with, with John Peel, who's, who's quite famous over here in the UK. I'll put a link onto that, the YouTube clip to that as well, which is interesting. And um, I've got a song called Three Heart Boogie, which I got you down as playing with James Cotton and Paul Buckfield. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Hey, hey. 
Is that something that, you know, were you all in the studio together and recording that? No, we did that at a, a guy that recorded called Norman Dayron, his name, and he recorded us at, at his house. He had one of those recorders, and we did that at his house. Right, but, but you were there together, were you? Yeah, me, yeah. Paul Butterfield, and James Cotton. Yeah, that's a good one to get you all playing together, just that jams. What was Paul Butterfield like? Oh, he was a nice guy, a nice kid. He was very friendly, and he was very talented. When he first came on the scene, a lot of the black people, when they saw him and uh, Charlie Musselwhite, they came on the scene together. And they, they they were surprised to see they could play the harmonicas as well as anybody else and sing as good as any of the black guys. And they would say, oh, you mean to say white people like that kind of music? I say, yeah, they like it. I say, yeah, they like that, that music too, you know. They were surprised because they thought only black people was, you know, interested in it. Yeah, and of course, some great white players have come through. And, you know, it's funny now, isn't it? Because a lot of the blues players now are, are white guys, you know, rather than the black guys. And, you know, how, how yeah. do you how do you feel about that? You sort of, you know, I think the black the sort of black community has lost I, a bit of interest in the blues. It's sort of gone to cost of the white guys, isn't it? I think it's a great compliment because if it wasn't for some of those young old guys coming along, the blues might not be as popular as it is. Yeah. And so that just shows the influence that the blues had on the world. And it don't make no difference what, what nationality you are, what color you are. It's a, it's a very emotional music, and anybody can do it if they really want it. You know, see, so you, you take a guy like Charlie Mulsa White and uh, Paul Butterfield, they were born to do what they do, you know. They didn't just jump up and say, well, I'm going to do this. That was in them just like it was in me, just like it was in Sonny Boy. It just takes, you hear another guy do it, and you realize that you have that same thing in you to do the same thing, you know. Yeah, no, it's great to hear it's so inclusive, yeah, and uh, it's very welcoming that. So, uh, and, and recently, I think, just published just last year, there's a book that's come out on you, written by Kim Field and yourself, called The Blues mm -hmm. Dream of Billy Boy Arnold, yeah? So, uh, yeah. how did this come about with Kim? Kim mentioned it uh, to me, and uh, I was I didn't think I had enough stuff to, to make a write a book, you know. And he kept, him and Dick Sherman kept it, influencing me, yeah, you should should do it. And so I did it, and it seemed like it came out pretty good. Yeah, superb to get out there. So again, I'll put a link on so that people can find the book. And, uh, you know, so Kim Field, uh, you know, well-established writer about harmonica. He's also written Harmonicas, Harps, and Heavy Breathers, I think it's called. So uh, I read that book uh, numerous years ago now. So he does a good job. So... Did you, you know, you helped write this book with Kim Field, did you? Did you did you sit together and, and get things down? Or? Yeah, we, we got together and uh, he asked me questions and I told him, you know, what the, the stories and he, you know, wrote it down, you know. Yeah, so uh, you pleased how it's come out? Yes, I am very pleased, yeah. I think it's good to put Kim Fields in the same category with a, Lester Barrett Rose for R.C. Victor, Leonard Chess, Kim Fields, Dick Sherman. Those are the guys that keep the blues going. I mean, they those guys are very influential, you know, behind the music. Yeah, I think one thing what, what Kim Fields is trying to emphasize with this book as well is that, and as I mentioned at the front, you've been around pretty much for all the time through, you know, the, the boom of the Chicago blues. As well as it being your story, you know, you were there for all that time for the blues boom in Chicago, yeah, so it really captures those times, and you're, you know, you're one of the, uh, you know, the, you know, the people from that time, aren't you? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. So great. Definitely uh, recommend people go and check out the book. And uh, well done to Kim Field as well for carrying on that writing the blues down. So you, you've had various nominations for uh, the Blues Music Awards. Are you in? Um, you got the nomination for Blues Music Award for Best Male Artist in 2014. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that for um, for particularly one of the albums you did? Uh, I can't remember exactly which one. But yeah. 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 Great. And um, a question I ask each time, Billy, is if you had 10 minutes to practice, what would you spend those 10 minutes doing? Oh, yeah, when you find a song that you really like and that you're inspired by and you just keep practicing with it until you get it, you get it. If you keep doing it, it'll come to you because the fact that you want to do it means that you can do it. So is that how you started out learning yourself? You know, you listen to records, play along to records and pick them up that way, yeah. And the fact that if you want to do something like that, that means that there's something in you that uh, is in the person that you're listening to, like Sonny Boy or Lou Walter. So there's something in you that was in them, and if you just stick with it for a while, it'll pay off. Because otherwise it it wouldn't have never developed if it wasn't in you to do it. Yeah, sure. And when you were learning, you know, and all through the years of your playing, have you, you know, how, how have you approached practicing? Do you, do you just sort of do it as you're playing along with a band? And, you know, have you sort of approached learning in any particular way? Do you have a particular practice regime or have you just sort of, you know, played with a band and developed your sound that way? No, I'm up to now. I don't do a lot of practicing, but a lot of guys do. So it depends on the individual, you know. You have to just work with it. And if you stick with it, and it's in you to do it, and it's in you to do it, the fact that you want to do it. It'll come out. You'll see the fruits of it if you stick with it. Yeah, great, yeah. So I'll ask you a few questions about harmonica gear stuff, and how that's okay, just the last sections. So first of all, what harmonicas did you play, you know, back then? I guess marine bands were the only harmonicas around, yeah? Uh, American Ace and Marine Band. Uh, do you still play marine bands now? Oh, yeah, still. Marine Band is still the best ones. And what about playing in different harmonic positions? Are you generally playing in second position, or do you play some third and what third and first position and others? Well, I, I play in second position, uh, third position on certain songs. But LaWalter started all those positions. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the first guy that created all them different positions on the harmonica because he was a very aggressive student. Yeah. So again, just by picking them up by you know listening to the records, you, you you picked up some third position stuff and yeah. And um, what about embouchure wise? Do you tongue block or pucker or anything else? Yeah, tongue block, and sometimes I just play without tongue block. You use them. Uh, it depends on what, what song, you know. Yeah, and the, and the different effects. You think there's there's benefits yeah. for for both? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Equipment-wise, what sort of amplifier did you use? You know, sort of back then, maybe when you, you know, back in the fifties initially. Oh, you, back in those days, you most of the guys didn't have a lot of money. Younger guys, you could go to Maxwell Street and buy an amplifier for twenty-five or thirty bucks, 
and get a uh, one of those bullet type of mics, and you start out with that. And if you, if you get real good, like Lil Walt, then you can buy the expensive stuff, you know. Yeah. So back then, you weren't particularly choosy about your amplifier then. You basically got whatever you could afford, yeah? But, uh, yeah, whatever you could afford, yeah. Mm-hmm. And whatever, everybody around Chicago, whatever Lil Walter came up with, that's the one they would go for, they would buy. Yeah. And some of the stuff Lil Walter would come up with was too expensive for the average guy to buy it, you know. Yeah, Lil Walter was traveling and making big money. You couldn't afford it, you know. But they had amplifiers that was just as good, you know. Yeah, were they old tube amplifiers that were being sold, like you say, in Maxwell Street? And... Yeah, they they had the sound. Yeah, you could get the good sound out of that, you know. Yeah, it's just a cheaper amplifier. Is that good? Sonny Boy told me that his he paid two hundred dollars for the amplifier. He had his house. He said I paid two hundred dollars cash for this. So of course. If you was in a position like he was in, you could probably, you know, buy a two hundred dollar amp. Most of the young guys starting out will buy a thirty-five, forty dollar amp, you know. And is it right that um, Tony Boy first, you know, he did play amplifier, didn't he? And he, he sort of started the amplification. Oh yes, as he played the amplified harp in the club, yeah. Yeah, because I think a lot of people think that Little Walter started the harmonic amplification, didn't no, they? No, Sonny Boy started that. Muddy Water said. The first guy he heard play amplified harmonica was John Lee Sonny Boy Williamson. And Snooky Pryor claimed that he was the first one, but he wasn't. And um, more recently, uh, you know, in, well, let's say back in the 90s, uh, when you came up with these two alligator albums, did then you start getting interested in different amplifiers and, and choosing what amplifiers you were playing through? Yeah. Do you have any particular favorite amplifiers then and now? Well, now... Uh, most of the time they have a, you play through the mic on the stage, but if you're playing in a club, you might have an amplifier, and it don't have to be a brand new and a, a later model unless you want to spend a lot of money, and the amplifier is pretty heavy to carry around, so different guys use a different thing. Yeah, so you might use what's in the club a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, and again, microphone-wise, you just, you've got some mics uh, that you take right with you, have you? You carry a mic with you, yeah. And did you ever use any effects pedals? No, I never used none of that. Nothing, no reverb or delay, anything like that at all? No, no, I yeah. never used that. Finally then, obviously, um, are you still playing at the, uh, at the moment? Are you still getting out playing and got plans to get out playing later this year? Well, or? I'm not I'm not playing it because of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get out there and, you know, play till the pandemic is over. Yeah. I might play and I might not, you know. Yeah, so you're still thinking about you might get out playing again when uh, hopefully the pandemic goes away. Oh yeah, yeah. And over the pandemic, have you have you still been still playing some music, or uh, have you been just taking a break from it? Well, I'm still playing, you know, listening to music as I always did, you know. Yeah. Because of the pandemic, I don't want to get out there. Um, what harmonica plays do you like to listen to these days? I like to listen to all of the greats. You know, anybody that's uh, saying anything on the harmonica, I listen to them. Yeah. Yeah. Because so you can still... always get ideas, you know. Yeah, so you're still interested in listening to uh, the harmonica players now, not just the you know, not just the older guys. Yeah, yeah. Any of the new guys come out, I listen mm. to them. You know. Yeah. Any anyone I should check out there? Well, they got so many that haven't made records. You know, most of the time you check out the ones that made a record. If they make a record, you make a re- record in Chicago. That record go to England, or Japan, or wherever. Yeah. And so you hear that, and you buy the record, and you listen and say, "Oh, this guy's great." Or if they playing with a known band, then you know what to listen to. 
Yeah, superb. So thanks so much for joining me today, Billy Boy Arnold. Okay, you're welcome. That's episode 53 done, and so grateful to get great Billy Boy Arnold on the show. Uh, a true legend of the harmonican, being around during that heyday of Chicago time. Great to get him on. Been wanting to get him on for quite some time now. Big shout out thanking Bob Corritor, a previous guest on the show, who helped me set it up with Billy. So thanks so much, Bob. I had to run that interview over the telephone, which is uh, not always my preference, but sometimes has to be done. Not the greatest telephone line on Billy's side, so apologies for the crackling sounds. I did my best to improve it, but um, I like to think that with such an authentic Chicago great, maybe having a little crackling just adds a little authenticity to it all, like a crackling record. Also, I'd like to thank Robert Sawyer and Ruben Emanuele for donating some funds to help me running the podcast. So thank you, Robert and Ruben. Much appreciated. Remember, oh, you can check out my website now, which is harmonicahappyhour.com, where you can find some more information and uh, hopefully a better format off to uh, to browse through the different podcasts available. There's some featured episodes on there and other useful stuff. And you can contact me as well through the website and always appreciate any suggestions for any future guests. And still working on the website, still coming together. So keep your eye on that. Do remember to check out the Spotify playlist. All the songs, pretty much the clips of the songs which are included, the full songs are available on Spotify. So do go and check that out and then you can listen to uh, the songs. There's a, there's a huge collection of songs in that, in that Spotify playlist for all the tracks we talked about through the podcast series. So thanks very much. And finally, over to the one and only Bill Boy Arnold. There's only one track to play us out with and that is his classic harmonica song, I Wish You Would, recorded with Tony McPhee and the Groundhogs. Come back, baby, I wish you would. Billy boy, Billy boy, where you been? In jail and I'm going to be. Billy boy, Billy boy, where's your wife? Out in the alley shooting dice. 